You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel, and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan as defined by its borders. Your south side shall be from the wilderness of Zin alongside Edom, and your southern border shall run from the end of the salt sea on the east, and your border shall turn south of the ascent of Akrabbim and cross to Zin, and its limit shall be south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar and pass along to Asmon, and the border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its limit shall be at the sea. For the western border you shall have the great sea at its coast. This shall be your western border. This shall be your northern border. From the great sea you shall draw a line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor you shall draw a line to Lebel Hamath, and the limit of the border shall be Zedad. Then the border shall extend to Ziphron, and its limit shall be at Hazar Anan. This shall be your northern border. You shall draw a line for your eastern border from Hazar Inan to Shepham, and the border shall go down from Shepham to Ribla on the east side of Ain, and the border shall go down and reach to the shoulder of the Sea of Chenrath on the east, and the border shall go down to the Jordan, and its limit shall be at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land as defined by its borders all around. Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, This is the land that you shall inherit by lot, which Yahweh has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. For the tribe of the people of Reuben by fathers' houses and the tribe of the people of Gad by their fathers' houses have received their inheritance and also the half-tribe of Manasseh. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan east of Jericho toward the sunrise. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for inheritance. These are the names of the men, of the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of the tribe of the people of Simeon, Shemuel the son of Amihud, of the tribe of Benjamin, Eladad the son of of Chislon, of the tribe of the people of Dan, a chief, Buki, the son of Jogli, of the people of Joseph, of the tribe of the people of Manasseh, a chief, Haniel, the son of Ephod, and of the tribe of the people of Ephraim, a chief, Kemuel, the son of Shiftan, of the tribe of the people of Zebulun, a chief, Elizaphan, the son of Parnak, of the tribe of the people of Issachar, a chief, Paltiel, the son of Azan, and of the tribe of the people of Asher, a chief, Ahihud, the son of Shalomi, of the tribe of the people of Naphtali, a chief, Pedahel, the son of Amihud. These are the men whom Yahweh commanded to divide the inheritance for the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. <laughs> Welcome. 
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 646 of this podcast. That was a reading, just a brief, brief reading, a brief chapter, numbers 34, talking through, yeah, no big deal, just dividing up the land, how that's going to be accomplished, how we're going to do it, who's going to be in charge of it. Who's going to be overseeing the dividing up the land? What the boundaries and the borders are going to be of this new land, this promised land? You know, no big deal. They've just been wandering in the desert for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They've just been, before that, slaves in Egypt for 430 years. You know, now that they're getting their own land, that's yeah, it's whatever, right? It's, it's whatever. Uh, but actually, this is a huge deal. It's a huge, huge deal. It's not a long passage, but it's a really important passage because of a couple of things. One, we have here the idea of borders. We have the idea of boundaries. Boundaries are a good thing. In fact, God being a God of order, not a God of chaos, it's not surprising or it shouldn't be surprising that God here is giving boundaries. This is Yahweh speaking to Moses saying, these are going to be your boundaries. These are going to be the borders using landmarks, using places that they're familiar with, that they know, they know these places that are being described, and also what? Setting up not just what the boundary of Israel is going to be, but what the boundary of the surrounding nations and peoples are therefore consequently going to be. And then also it's interesting, you have chiefs of the people who are listed, they're named, they're specified, not just what tribe they're chief over, but who their fathers were. And you have this reference to giving the portions of land to the tribes by lot. God ultimately is sovereign. God can dictate and does dictate the outcome of the roll of the dice. And so even the choosing by lot is, in some sense, a choosing by God who's going to be settled where, who's going to be established where in the land, but then you have people, humanly speaking, who are going to oversee this process of casting lots, presumably, and notifying the people and informing them and confirming, perhaps, possibly, if there are any questions, oh, are, are you sure this one, this this land is ours? Well, what about this land over here? Can we trade? Can we swap? Is, is that okay? Can we, you know, questions like that will come up. And so these men who are listed presumably, are the ones who will be able to see and testify to the casting of the lots. They'll be able to certify and establish and report back to their peoples, their tribes. Yes, in fact, this is our land. This is our portion. Yes, in fact, these are the borders. These are the boundaries. But just think with me for a moment about this idea of there being boundaries and a portion for specific tribes in proportion to their size as a tribe, but a portion, nevertheless. This pretty firmly denies the legitimacy of saying there shouldn't be nations, there shouldn't be borders to countries. What exactly is the point of having borders if you're not going to say this is jurisdiction? There is a sense of ownership. There's a sense of entitlement literally having the title, <laughs> but there's also the sense of responsibility. So in my household, for instance, 
we have my wife and myself and seven sons who have been born to Lauren and I. An eighth son, we just found out, is expected. We're expecting an eighth son in November. We have a name picked out. We don't like to wait. We don't like to refer to a child as it. And we don't like to refer to a child as he alone. We want to have a name. This child should have a name. And so the name of this baby boy to be born on my birthday in November this year is Nathaniel. Nathaniel Job, actually. But in this household, we have all these sons. And we have a daughter. And our daughter has a room. Now, our daughter's room is her room, which is to say she has the right, we've told her this, she has the right to tell her brothers, I want you to get out of my room. Like say, for instance, if she is trying to rest or if she's trying to work on something, if she's trying to do her studies, if she's trying to get changed, if she just wants a moment, she's allowed to tell her brothers, I want you to get out of my room. And if they won't listen, well, then I can be called upon to remove them and make them listen because ultimately I've given her that authority to tell her brothers, please get out. I want her at, I, I want her asking nicely, right? I want her to be courteous and polite, but I also want her to be firm when she needs to be firm, when she says, all right, you need to go now. If they're being discourteous, if they're being unpleasant or rude or obnoxious or disruptive, I want her to tell them, please get out and to let me know if they're not. But she also has a responsibility. So she has the right to this room because we've given this room to her, but she also has a responsibility because it is her room. She also is the one who needs to clean it. And if she says, wow, but my brothers made a mess, right? They came in and make a mess and I tried to tell them to get out, but she didn't tell me. She didn't inform me that they were making a mess. She didn't tell me that they weren't getting out. Then what do I say? On a case by case, I say, all right, well, your brothers are going to come in there and they're going to help you to get this clean. Or I say, you know what? This, I think, was like this before your brothers came in. I think you made this mess and you need to clean it up. So she gets both ends, right? Those being the boundaries of her room, she has certain rights and privileges. She also has certain responsibilities. It's no different or very little different. It's just a question of scale when you're talking about tribes and clans and families and individuals who are going to be given certain portions of land. It's no different when you're talking about a nation having a certain boundary, having a certain area, having a certain geographical region. It's no different or it's very little different because what comes with having boundaries and borders is you have certain rights, like say, for instance, to tell people to get out who aren't supposed to be there, who are not your people, who are not your nation. You have certain rights to be able to say, no, you're not welcome. We're not having visitors today. No, no, thank you. Please go. I said, go. I will make you go. <laughs> that, that comes with the territory, literally and figuratively. But you have certain responsibilities as well. Once you have a portion of land, once you have a nation, once you have a country, you have certain responsibilities to make sure that you're taking care of business in that land. Now, in this case, they haven't possessed the land yet, but they're being told, get ready, right? Get ready because this is how it's going to be. This is how it's going to be apportioned. And even that is orderly. So God is ordering their thinking about this so that it's not a free-for-all. It's not just, hey, whatever, right? 
It's not an arm wrestling contest. It's not, let's flip a coin. It's not rock, paper, scissors. No, we're going to cast lots. And we're going to have certain men who oversee that and who inform and administrate and facilitate. But all of this has tremendous ramifications for our interpersonal relationships. It's okay to have boundaries. In fact, it's necessary to have boundaries. In fact, people who deny that, who campaign against that, you should be very suspicious of, very, very suspicious of. It's good and appropriate and orderly and not at all unloving, unkind, ungodly, unwise for a nation and a people to have borders and boundaries. Now, if a people or a nation is not doing what they ought to do, we should also learn from this that God can orchestrate the removal of a people and nation from a certain area of jurisdiction. One, they can lose their right, in a sense, to just do whatever they want in that part of the world. But for another thing, if they're not fulfilling their responsibilities, then haven't they actually forfeited? Haven't they, in some sense, surrendered their own birthright? Like, for instance, for example, if our neighbor to the south, Mexico, is not taking its responsibilities seriously to stop drug cartels from smuggling in criminals and terrorists and drugs, smuggling those across our southern border into the United States, if they're not doing their job, in fact, if many government officials and many in the military and many in law enforcement are being bribed or else they actually work with I mean, that's their side hustle is to work with the drug cartels and they profit handsomely off of looking the other way or helping to facilitate or escort or what have you, the drug cartels in Mexico. And if those drug cartels, with the help of the Mexican government, or at least with uh, looking the other way, the tacit approval, passive approval of their own government, if the drug cartels are coming up into the United States and murdering Americans poisoning Americans, defrauding Americans, introducing all kinds of lawlessness and chaos. It is actually very appropriate for our government to say, you either get a handle on that or we're going to come in and we're going to get a handle on it for you. We're going to send our military in and we will deal with it. You either deal with it or we're going to come and deal with it. Now, what's interesting is this is not a hypothetical. This has actually been floated by Republicans And there's much peril, of course. This is fraught with danger to be talking this way, but then there's even more danger to not consider this, to not promise it. We shouldn't threaten it if we're not willing to deliver, but to promise reprisals and accountability and enforcement of our own border is appropriate. It is appropriate. Now, what Mexico's president has in recent months done is he has denounced Republicans, decrying them, threatening them in return. How dare you threaten to violate our sovereignty, potentially, even just talking about it publicly? How dare you? But let's be honest. Let's be real. If he's not doing his job, if his government is not doing their job, well, then in some sense, they've forfeited the right to act indignant, to do the plural clutching thing. They have forfeited the right to act surprised or indignant 
if they're facilitating the drug cartels and the lawlessness that's pouring across the southern border. But then the other thing is that Mexico has publicly invited China in to help them deal with the drug cartels. Now, the dangerous thing about this is what you potentially have is the Chinese coming in to Mexico. And if we don't have access to the mechanisms to control and secure our southern border, what prevents China from coming up through our southern border into the United States in the event of a war? Really, really truly, what prevents China from coming across, even right now, infiltrating this country, our country, with hostile intent, nefarious intent? Nothing, really, nothing. If we don't control our borders, if we don't maintain law and order in our own country. And so I say all of this not to make this whole episode about border walls and border enforcement and border security. No, no, but just to establish that the people who just so happen to be for abortion and the dissolution of any sense of sexual ethic or sexual morality that would come from or resemble Christian ethics and Christian morality, more to the point, Christ's ethic, Christ's commands in relation to sexuality and gender, the same people who are for transing the kids, who are for taking all of your wealth and then redistributing it around the world, the same people who are for combating climate change, supposedly so-called, and regulating your every personal decision, requiring you to either affirm or else at least not contradict their lies online or in the corporate media, the same people are also consistently lawless when it comes to border security. And it's not for no reason. These things go together. These things are a package deal. Their lawlessness is consistent, which is not much praise, but hey, you know, if you're going to be consistent, at least I can give you that. I can say we should also be consistent as conservatives. As Christians, we should be consistent and not being lawless is a place to start. Not being disorderly and chaotic is a place to start. Not ignoring the whole counsel of God with regards to orderliness and the administration of justice is a place to start. Therefore, I say, Numbers 34 is as good a passage as any to establish that God himself is for borders and boundaries. And therefore, if we're going to be imitators of God, we also should be for borders and boundaries. Moving on, let's talk about a post over at Not The Be from June 21st. This one's been hanging out in my browser tabs for most of the past week, and I've just been so busy. I haven't had a chance. I've got a huge backlog of stories and articles and essays and audio clips that I want to bring to you on the podcast, but I've just been so busy. I haven't had a chance to podcast like I've been wanting to, and that's a good thing. Also, too, I have the opportunity today. I'm feeling sick. I was supposed to be helping with music. I was also supposed to be attending a security team meeting at church. But I've been sick this weekend. I had to cancel a number of things over the weekend, unfortunately, because I and our son Solomon at least have been. And then some of our other kids are just getting over having been sick this past week. And we don't want to give it to other people. We want to share, but we also want to, speaking of borders and boundaries, not 
disrespect other people, not be inconsiderate of other people, and risk them getting sick unnecessarily. So we stayed home. We stayed home. Probably was for the best because I was sneezing and sniffling and coughing quite a lot. Earlier in the morning, I've got a bit of a sore throat, but it's not stopping me from podcasting because I don't think you can get what I have right now via the podcast recording. There's enough barriers. There's enough filters. You should be okay. But one of the stories, this story I'm going to talk with you about next, comes with an audio clip, an extended audio clip. There is some strong language. I won't play the full thing. I won't play the whole thing, but I'll play a portion, and then I'll encourage you to watch the full thing if you want to know more about this professor, Derek Jensen, as he's talking through the links between the queer theory, as they call it, gender theory, gender as a social construct, very much of a piece with queer theory, very much of a piece with, as it turns out, the promotion of pedophilia, the targeting of, the preying on of children in society. These things go together. Speaking of package deals and consistency, these things go together. But without further ado, thank you to Aaron McIntyre for tweeting this out, for Harris Rigby to have embedded the tweet over at Not The Bee. Thank you to both of them. But without further ado, I'm going to play for you cut one of Derek Jensen, professor, explaining these things, unpacking them vis-a-vis a little bit of queer theory bingo jeopardy. Take a listen. Okay, so actually, actually, it seems you're acting like this is a spurious connection. So we're going to play Jeopardy. This is, we're going to play queer theory, we're going to play queer theory pedophilia Jeopardy. Okay, answer. Uh, Commonly called the godfather of queer theory. Who is Foucault? Who is Foucault? I got it. Okay, 100 points. Um, Foucault, uh, another way to ask this is, who argued, no, I guess the answer would be, argued for the eradication of age of consent laws as in down to infants? Who is Foucault? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, next one. Um, uh, the author of the, the, author of the uh, founding document of queer theory? Who is Gail Rubin? Who is Gail Rubin? Um, what percentage? No, no, the answer is 50%. Question is? The amount in that article that was a defense of pedophilia, specifically, quote, boy lovers, so men who talk boys. Oh. Wow. And since you're not believing me, quote, quote, this is in the founding document of queer theory. Like communists and homosexuals in the 1950s, boy lovers are so stigmatized that it is difficult to find defenders of their civil liberties, let alone for their erotic orientation. That's in the founding document of queer theory. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm using facts. <laughs> a thousand, a thousand apologies. One must never let facts in the way. Oh, and she also compared, by the way, she compared pedophilia. She compared pedophilia to uh, a preference for spicy food. Um, the thing is, I have never heard of anyone who has to have years of therapy because they ate hot and sour soup. Okay, so up to 200. Now it is, uh, now it is, now it is pedophilia and queer theory for 300. Uh, that would be 
author of uh, Macho Sluts. Well, author of Macho Sluts and Public Sex. Pat Califia. Wait, wait, wait. What was it somebody said? Stay relevant. Let's talk about uh, Pat Califia. Why don't you respond? Okay, now let's just actually stop, though. He continues to talk in this video embedded in the Harris Rigby post over at Not To Be. Professor Derek Jensen continues talking for another six minutes or so, just under six minutes more. And I would encourage you, watch the whole thing, and you'll hear more disruptions. As he continues going on, you get more angry, cursing, yelling from some of the students. You know, some of the students very much approve of his doing this and explaining how these things go together. In the writings of the people who have developed queer theory, these things go together. Uh, They're fellow travelers. Queer theory, the promotion of homosexuality the promotion of transgenderism, and yes, the promotion of pedophilia, the normalization of pedophilia, the destigmatization, and then ultimately the legalization of pedophilia. All these things go together. Now, it's not to say, and he points this out as well later on in the video, it's not to say that everybody who's a homosexual or bisexual or transgendered person is also therefore a pedophile, but it is to say the founding documents, the philosophers who wrote those founding documents, and the core and essential writings developing this theory, this philosophy, this worldview, this movement, they, in the interest of consistency, also wanted to normalize pedophilia. And why I bring this up in relation to this idea of boundaries is actually uh, more pressing. It's more pressing than our southern border with uh, Mexico. It's more pressing, but it's, it's of a piece, right? Again, with the consistency thing, It's very consistent for conservatives to say we're for boundaries uh, with regards to sexuality and gender. Just like it's very, very appropriate and very consistent for us to say we're for boundaries when it comes to state laws, right? Jurisdiction, uh, national laws, national jurisdiction, state borders, county borders, very appropriate. City limits, very appropriate. National borders, national limits, very appropriate. But again, more fundamentally, more essentially, our insistence as conservatives, as Christians in this country and in every country on boundaries regarding sexual ethics, that that is so very, very important. And it's not to say that we will always uh, affect the laws as quickly or as thoroughly or as comprehensively as the radical agitators the degenerates, the predators, the immoral, the ungodly. The Bible would give us categories for them as the wicked. Uh, Those who are for righteousness and who are lovers of God will consistently have to establish boundaries and borders 
with regards to what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is wise and what is foolish, what is going to be permitted and what is not going to be permitted if we will take our responsibility seriously, if we will exercise our rights. Uh, going back to our last episode where I read for you the entirety of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Live Not By Lies essay, you know, the final essay he published before he was arrested and exiled from the Soviet Union back in 1974. I read, for the, I read for you the entirety where he explains that it's always this grumbling and complaining behind the scenes about what they are doing, what they are pushing, what they are bungling, what they are messing up, you know, they being the party bosses, they being the government, they being the most diehard communists. But he points out that it's not they, it's we, because we affirm their lies. When they threaten us, we affirm their lies. We say what they tell us to say. Not only do we do what they tell us to do, we say, more importantly, what they tell us to say. And they threaten violence, yes. But we support that violence by supporting their lies. And at a bare minimum, we should pledge to not affirm their lies. This is why the preferred pronouns business is so very, very important. To use someone's preferred pronouns when they do not match the cellular level, the genetic level reality of how God made them is wrong. And we're only doing it not because we love them. We're only doing it because we're afraid of the violence that they would do to us. We're afraid of the violence that they would do to our ability to provide for our families. We're afraid of the violence that they would do to our reputation. We're afraid of the violence that they would do to us physically, actually even, if they had the wherewithal, if they had the ability. And oh, by the way, it's not for no reason that the same people are demanding the disarmament of conservatives and Christians in particular. And they're trying to persuade us in a very manipulative fashion that that's actually the most Christian thing. The most Christian thing to do would be to allow ourselves to be disarmed and to affirm their lies. And what we should expect is what has always happened in countries where communism takes over Yes, they disarm the people, but they disarm the people before they brutalize the people. Uh, you can come and take my guns. You can try to come and take my guns, but I'm not going to affirm your lies. And what we need to be very clear-headed about is these things go together. Ultimately, they want to assert dominance over every facet of human life and human existence, every relationship. They want to dissolve and abolish just to assert dominance over the fact that they can because they're committed to playing God. These things go together. These things are a package deal. And so also the opposition to them needs to be of a peace with living not by lies. The opposition needs to be of a peace with God being a God of order, not a God of chaos. The opposition needs to be centered on God's authority, God declaring what is and isn't. And what goes where and what doesn't belong in this other place. And who is what God says they are or who God says they are. Who has authority is the question. Who has authority is the question. And we have to answer it as Christians. You don't get the option to be passive, to be silent, or to affirm the lies and then say, I didn't know. I had no part in it. I had no choice. I was just following orders. You should have been following God's orders. God gives orders too. 
And if you can't obey God's orders and also this lower level middle manager wannabe person's uh, authority, their orders, if you can't follow both, you have to obey God rather than men. That's the very clear, consistent account, Old Testament and New Testament. That's the very clear example that we have set before us, which we must, we must follow if we would be followers of Christ. Now, what's curious about Derek Jensen, and again, he's the professor, I played the audio clip for you, uh, of speaking to his class. What's curious about Derek Jensen is if I look him up on Wikipedia, because I was curious, I wasn't familiar, and I thought, who is this guy, right? Who is this guy talking so much sense and exposing what he's exposing here? Derek Jensen, according to Wikipedia, born December 19th, 1960, is an American eco-philosopher, writer, author, teacher, and environmentalist in the anarcho-primitivist tradition, though he rejects the label anarchist. Utne Reader named Jensen among 50 visionaries who are changing the world in 2008, and Democracy Now! says he has been called the poet-philosopher of the ecology movement. Jensen is a critic of the mainstream environmental movement's focus on preserving civilization and technology over preserving the natural world. He specifically challenges the lifestyle changes and individualistic solutions broadly advocated, considering them drastically inadequate to the global scale of environmental catastrophe. Instead, he promotes civil disobedience, radical activism, and dismantling infrastructure on a massive level in order to halt what he has called the, quote, murder of the planet, end quote. Jensen is a founder and leader Within Deep Green Resistance, his and his organization's belief that women-only spaces should exclude trans women has been the subject of controversy. Jensen lives in Crescent City, California. Now, interesting, his alma maters are Colorado School of Mines, which is in Golden, Colorado. They have great pizza there, by the way. I'm sure he's had Woody's Pizza, fantastic pizza, some of the best pizza I've ever had in my life. Uh, Also, he attended Eastern Washington University for his MFA. But suffice to say, he and I would disagree on a very deep and uh, genuine level regarding the environment, man's relationship to the environment. He and I would disagree very strongly. I work in oil and gas. I reject the climate hysteria because I think it's of a piece with the push for communism globally. I reject this radical environmentalist, anti-human approach to conservation, because I don't think that that's actually conservationism. I would agree with Alex Epstein and the moral case for fossil fuels, that what you have at root here is an idea of the ideal environmentally, which sees no impact from human beings. The logical conclusion, the next thing to go to, according to Paul Ehrlich, is to have fewer people have fewer people, not just a lower standard of living per person, but have fewer people and you will thereby decrease man's environmental impact. Carbon emissions, that's just a excuse. They're blinding you with science. It's not true what they're purporting. But all that said, Derek Jensen and I would, it would seem, line up on the same side of the queer theory topic. It would seem. From that clip, it would seem we would agree on the dangers of queer theory and more to the point, the danger to children that queer theory represents or at at a minimum, at a least, uh, he is being honest. 
Now, whatever he would say as to what we should go to next, you know, once we come to these conclusions, how then should we respond? That I don't know. But what I would say is you don't give the queer theorists, the homosexuals, the bisexuals, the transgendered people, you don't give them the right or the opportunity or the free hand to rewrite our culture, rewrite our laws. You don't give them a free hand to run roughshod over people saying, leave the kids alone. You don't do that. And actually, just like Derek Jensen was getting yelled at, cursed at by angry students in that clip I was playing for you, you don't shut up and change the subject just because people are going to get upset with you for talking sense and telling the truth. Just like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you don't live by lies just because they're going to threaten violence against you otherwise. But let's talk briefly about something different, something also on Wikipedia, but something very different that maybe will be a palate cleanser and help us to not get too worked up, too bent out of shape, too angry, because it's important for us to put away wrath and bitterness, envy, even if it's righteous anger. Take care, right? Take care because that righteous anger can cloud your judgment and make you very vulnerable. Let's talk about letters of horning. What are letters of horning and why am I looking this up? Why do I care? Well, first off, I'll read for you the Wikipedia entry and then I'll explain. In Scots law, letters of horning are a document, i.e. letters, issued by civil authorities that publicly denounce a person as an outlaw. The document was issued against persons who had not paid their debts. Historically, the documents would also be announced by three blasts of a horn, and the documents themselves came to be known as letters of horning as a result. A person who was denounced in these documents was described as having been put to the horn. Originally, here's the history, originally in Scotland, imprisonment for debt was enforceable only in certain cases, but a custom gradually grew up of taking the debtor's oath to pay. If the debtor broke his oath, he became liable to the discipline of the church. The civil power could step in to aid the ecclesiastical, denouncing the debtor as an outlaw, imprisoning his person, and confiscating his goods. The method of declaring a person an outlaw was by giving three blasts on a horn and publicly proclaiming the fact, hence the expression, put to the horn. The subsequent process, a warrant directing a messenger at arms to charge the debtor to pay or perform in terms of the letters, was called letters of horning. The system of execution was simplified by the Personal Diligence Act of 1838, and execution was thereafter usually by diligence, see writ of execution. The granting of letters of horning, letters of horning and pointing, letters of pointing, and letters of caption all ceased to be competent following the Debtors Scotland Act of 1987. The Register of Hornings is kept by Registers of Scotland. Now, why I bring this up is actually a lot to do with having recently read Alistair Moffat's Scotland, A History from Earliest Times. I'm interested in Scotland because my wife's father's line descends from the Duffs, the MacDuffs. My mother's mother's side descends from the McFarlands the McFarlands of Arakar and Argyle, right on the shores of Loch Lomond. In compiling genealogy, 
for Clan McFarlane and for the Duffs. One interesting thing I came across was an anecdote about my 12th great-grandfather, Robert McFarlane. According to what I found out about him, and I've compiled this all in an Excel spreadsheet that I build onto as I find out additional things, Robert died after 1619 when he was resident in the Duke of Lennox's barony of Craigrostan on the east shore of Loch Lomond in Stirlingshire, Scotland. Like his father, he had to find caution for his part in the feud with the Colquhouns, in 1591 and was fined for aiding the McGregors in 1614. He was put to the horn on 15 July 1614 for stealing cattle from the lands of Loch End and was still being pursued for that in 1619. In Scots law, finding caution is security in a civil action. A party can be ordered to find caution in order to be allowed to proceed with an action. Most commonly, a pursuer can be ordered to find caution for expenses. No money is normally lodged with the court. A bond of caution is instead lodged. His son, Patrick McFarlane, has this recorded about him. Patrick was required to find caution on 25th March 1619 for his part in the feud with the Buchanans. In Scots law, finding caution is security in a civil action, as I said. So something I found out in reading Scotland, a history from earliest times by Alistair Moffat, something I find very interesting, something I found in the book is that James VI and first, King of Scotland and England, the King James who gave us the King James version of the Bible, that King James, King James whose nickname at court was Queen James, King James who was a closet homosexual and bisexual, that King James went after those he deemed vulnerable or easy pickings in Scotland, drudging up any old claims he could get his hands on to go after and to plunder and to reorganize all of Scottish society. And he did this right around the same time that my ancestors, my 11th and 12th great-grandfathers on my mother's mother's side, ended up having to take caution or find caution. He did this right around the same time that my ancestors were put to the horn for their part in feuds and cattle rustling. And actually, according to Alistair Moffat, this was happening across Scotland. The merest accusation or allegation of having been involved in something that was now deemed illegal was enough to very swiftly prosecute, convict, and execute many of the chiefs of Scottish clans, especially the Highland clans of which my ancestors were. As a result, many Scots left Scotland. Many Scots moved to what's known very often as the Ulster Plantation in Ireland, Northern Ireland, and subsequently moved to the colonies in North America. And they became what we now know of as the Ulster Scots or Scots-Irish. Both my ancestors and Lauren's ancestors are Scots-Irish. We are Scots-Irish from the Duffs on her side and the McFarlanes on my side. But what's also interesting about this period of time in Scotland's history and the history of the British Isles, what's also interesting here, besides just that 
King James was a sexual deviant behind the scenes and that he was looking for excuses to go after vulnerable clans and chiefs in Scotland to declare them outlaws, to prosecute, convict, and execute them whenever possible, and take their lands and redistribute their lands. What's also interesting about him is that he wrote a pretty famous work about demons and witches. He's fascinated by demonology and witchcraft. But he approached the topic from the standpoint of, here's how you know somebody's a witch. So that Monty Python skit about, she's a witch, how do you know she's a witch? Yeah, a lot of that kind of stuff, although they take it to more of an absurd length than he did. Nevertheless, that was kind of a big deal for King James sixth and first. And actually, I think personally that part of his fascination with and his writing extensively about demonology and witchcraft and encouraging the targeting of people who were said to be under the influence of the devil or who were said to be witches, I think it was of a piece with his trying to go after Highland clans for feuding and cattle rustling. I think it was of a piece with his general ambition to remake and reimagine Scotland in his own image, to take and to dispense with as he saw fit, to give to his favorites, to give to those who were willing to ingratiate themselves to him and kiss his ring, to take from those who he thought were either vulnerable or might oppose him and give to those he wanted to reward for being obedient or supportive. Why I bring this up is because I think his degeneracy behind the scenes wanted to use the sponsoring of the King James translation of the Bible as a kind of cover and legitimacy for his sins. I think his going after supposed lawbreakers, accused lawbreakers in Scotland, was of a piece with his trying to encourage people to go after witches. And it's not to say that nobody breaks the law or nobody has ever been an actual witch, but it is to say, I think he amplified those things so as to take attention away from his own sins. Coming back to Wikipedia, let's take a look at the entry for Salem witch trials, shall we? Quote, the Salem witch trials were a series of hearings and prosecutions of people accused of witchcraft in colonial Massachusetts between February 1692 and May 1693. More than 200 people were accused. 30 people were found guilty, 19 of whom were executed by hanging 14 women and five men. One other man, Giles Corey, was pressed to death after refusing to enter a plea and at least five people died in jail. Arrests were made in numerous towns beyond Salem and Salem Village, known today as Danvers, notably Andover and Topsfield. The grand juries and trials for this capital crime were conducted by a court of Oyer and Terminer in 1692 and by a superior court of Judicature in 1693, both held in Salem Town, where the hangings also took place. It was the deadliest witch hunt in the history of colonial North America. Only 14 other women and two men had been executed in Massachusetts and Connecticut during the 17th century. Now, let's just pause for a moment and let's recognize the revulsion, the displeasure, 
but also discussed that we feel rightly looking back on this period in early American history, colonial American history. Let's think about if this offends us, if it bothers us, if it disturbs us, let's think about part of what smuggled in this hysteria. And that's what the next paragraph leads off with is the episode is one of colonial America's most notorious cases of mass hysteria. It was not unique, they say, but a colonial manifestation of the much broader phenomenon of witch trials in the early modern period, which took the lives of tens of thousands in Europe. But let's just take a moment to recognize and admit our revulsion at this, largely because we don't believe, most of us, that actual witches were being accused, tried, convicted, and put to death. At least in my experience, when I talk with people, most people don't think that the people being accused of witchcraft or of being witches or communing with the devil were actually guilty of what they were being accused of. What we mostly recognize and admit, in my hearing anyway, is that these were people who were, for some reason or another, easy pickings. And this mass hysteria was in part fueled by, if you are the one pointing the finger at somebody else, you're less likely to be accused yourself. And so there was something of a living by lies quality to it for those who knew better and they went along with it anyways because, well, lest I also be accused and caught up in this, best to be on this side of it. But then the flip side is, again, there might actually be some validity to concerns that there were people practicing witchcraft, people who were communing with the devil, people who were communing with evil spirits. Sure, maybe, possibly. For instance, who do you think stirred this all up in the first place? If you think it was evil, don't you think there was some kind of a satanic influence when somebody was falsely accused, innocent, but then condemned, tortured, ultimately murdered if they were innocent? Don't you think Satan was involved in that? Don't you think demons were involved in that? Don't you think that was evil because maybe, just maybe, the devil was active in these situations? One way or the other, I think there's no getting around because I do believe that the devil is real and I believe that there are demons. But the witchcraft might have been what was written that helped to spark this very acute interest in going after witches on these terms. Let's skip over to another Wikipedia article, this one titled Witch Trials in the Early Modern Period for a more broad overview of witch hunting and how to deal with witches in European history. Under the subsection titled Peak of the Trials, 1560 to 1630, if I go down one, two, three, four, five paragraphs, I read this. And I quote, in 1590, the North Berwick witch trials occurred in Scotland and were of particular note as the king, James VI, became involved himself. James had developed a fear that witches planned to kill him after he suffered from storms while traveling to Denmark in order to claim his bride, Anne, earlier that year. Returning to Scotland, the king heard of trials that were occurring in North Berwick and ordered the subjects to be brought to him. He subsequently believed that a nobleman, Francis Stuart, 5th Earl of Bothwell, was a witch. And after the latter fled in fear of his life, 
he was outlawed as a traitor. The king subsequently set up a royal commission to hunt down witches in his realm, recommending torture in dealing with suspects. And in 1597, he wrote a book about the menace that witches posed to society entitled Demonology. So recognize, right, just for a moment, he's not the one who came up with it. He's not the first, but not so terribly long before the Salem witch trials. You had the Scottish and English king, James VI and I, a closet homosexual and a bisexual, latching on to this as a way of going after political rivals in Scotland, rooting them out, hunting them down, declaring them outlaws, torturing them, and then ultimately putting them to death if they were found guilty. And so what does that create? What kind of a climate does that create? It creates a climate of fear. You don't want to say anything that might attract the kind of attention that somebody will then react badly to who's in power and then turn into an accusation of witchcraft. This is what's going on today with cancel culture. This is what's going on with the woke mind virus, with social justice activism, with critical race theory, with gender theory, with queer theory. Exactly the same kind of mass hysteria has now been brought out into the open, secularized for the most part, and we find that this same mindset of going after supposed witches and heretics is applied to those who oppose woke orthodoxy, woke dogma. If you critique it, if you disagree with it, if you challenge it, even if you're just a conservative who looks like you would be ripe for the plunder, the left will come up with some way of torturing you and they essentially, for all intents and purposes, declare you an outlaw and then it's fair game. Then anybody can do anything to you and you had it coming. It's mass hysteria because the majority of people are too afraid to oppose it, to object to it, to say, no, this is wrong, right? This is coming from a place of corruption. This is also why the Old Testament laws from God to Moses to the people of Israel concerning testifying in a trial or not going in with the many against somebody who's being railroaded, not going in with the rich and powerful against those who are poor, not favoring uncritically the poor against the rich. This is why those standards of justice are so very important. And we can't, we can't just say, well, we'll agree to disagree. No, no. To condemn and convict an innocent man is wicked and evil. To be complicit in that, when you know better, is evil and wicked. And it stops, right? The whole charade stops if you apply what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said about not living by lies. The whole business, the whole violent business is predicated on getting everybody to affirm or, all, or else at least not contradict the lies that the violence depends on for its sustenance. And I'll say, I'll say, I absolutely believe that the devil and his demons are active in what we are seeing play out online and in real life, coast to coast, in major American cities and small towns. This is being used. It's being leveraged to the hilt, just like, just like the mass hysteria over the witch trials in the 17th century here in America and also 
in my ancestors, my wife's ancestors, native land, Scotland. And it's being used for much the same end, for much the same purpose, to remove people from their lands, from their titles, from positions of authority, to put everybody else on notice. You make example of a few, but then everybody else had better ask how high whenever you say jump. And what's in view is very much like what Nero was trying to do. Oh, look, it just so happens that a whole bunch of Rome has burned, and now I get to redesign and rebuild however I want. How convenient. It's very much of a piece with the burning of the Reichstag. The Nazis used that to go after their political opponents, go after their political enemies. And it might have been them. It might have been them that started the fire just so they could blame their political enemies, just so they could claim that there was a crisis. It's very much of a piece with January 6th. The left set that up so that they could have a broad mandate to witch hunt conservatives, to push them out of positions of power, to go after them legally, to harass them, to make examples of them. Because again, 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 there's no new thing under the sun. And what's the ambition? To remake society, to rebuild society in their own image. Speaking of, next I want to turn your attention to an article by Lonnie Lee Hood, published November 24th, 2020, at the TennesseeLookout.com. 1946 Tennessee election parallels 2020. Now, what's interesting about this article is the author went there and said, you know, this is not unprecedented. This concern about election fraud, the tumult, the upset, the violence actually was worse. I mean, imagine, just imagine if you know the story of the Battle of Athens, Tennessee, just imagine if that had played out on a grand scale, much less in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol building in 2020. Just imagine what the left would have done with that, what the Democrats would have done with that. But the Democrats were very active in Tennessee in the 1940s, and there was a very powerful, very ruthless political machine at work in McMinn County, Tennessee, and in Athens, Tennessee. There was a ruthless, violent, corrupt, dishonest, fraudulent political machine that harassed, fleeced, extorted, and even murdered citizens. And if anybody stood up to them, if anybody looked like easy pickings, they went after them too. If anybody ran against them, they made sure that the vote was counted always in the favor of the political machine. The local sheriff was corrupt. His deputies were lawless thugs. Think Robin Hood, the sheriff of Nottingham, that kind of a dynamic. Think the sheriff of Nottingham and his relationship to Prince John in the story of Robin Hood, if you're familiar with that. That's what was playing out in the 1940s in Tennessee. But then something happened. 1946, you have soldiers returning from World War II. Having served in the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, they come back from killing and from the enemy trying to kill them, seeing their buddies get wounded, handicapped, murdered in some sense by the enemy. They come back home and they get caught up to speed on how the political machine of the Democrats in Tennessee had been abusing their family and friends while they were gone. And this had been going on for a decade by this point. And the GIs who came back from war 
decided, you know what? That's enough. Enough is enough. We're going to run against the machine. We're going to field the candidates. We're going to run against the machine. And we're going to give the people of Athens, the people of McMinn County, the people of Tennessee, we're going to give them an alternative. We're going to give them a fresh start. And these GIs, they weren't going to be intimidated. They refused to be intimidated. And they banded together and they met secretly, always in different places. And they were tired of everyone everyone being run roughshod over, harassed, and even murdered in the darkest of cases. They were tired of being fleeced themselves. They come back from war. And then it just so happened that people were getting pulled over and arrested and taken to jail right when veterans' paychecks were coming in. They get this money back to them from the government. And the deputies knew, hey, that's when they're going to be flush with cash and we're going to come up with things. We'll, we'll come up with whatever it takes to pull them over, arrest them, take them to jail. If they give us any trouble whatsoever, we'll beat them, shoot them, brutalize them, threaten to kill them, actually kill them in some cases. And so there was an election, right? There was an election. And this was after years of complaints at all levels in the state government, county government, local community, complaints that went all the way to the Tennessee Supreme Court, that went all the way to the Department of Justice, complaint after complaint after complaint and inaction. And you might begin to wonder if the inaction at the state level, the county level, the city level was because the federal government was firmly in the grasp of Democrats as well. You might wonder that reasonably if Democrats across the country we're okay with this being the tactic. While the men were off at war, fighting and dying for their country, unscrupulous pretenders would just make sure it all worked out in the favor of the machines, the Democrat Party. And if there were concerns, if there were complaints about certain Democrats, certain politicians, certain law enforcement agents or agencies being a little bit too rough, well, what was that, right? What was that in wartime? What was that on the heels of the Great Depression and prohibition still being fresh in people's minds? These GIs finally had enough. On election day, when the sheriff's deputies were bold enough to shoot a black man who was told, you can't vote today, get out. Roughed up, thrown out, he walked right back in, folded his arms, leaned against the wall, and was promptly shot by one of the deputies, carried off to the hospital. Others, similarly, treated roughly. Election observers, roughed up, beaten, threatened. The opposition candidate, fielded by the GIs, hunted because they were going to kill him. He can't win the election if he's dead, after all. This resulted in what's known as the Battle of Athens, in which these returning GIs somehow happened to have their hands on firearms and ammunition and explosives. And they had an out-and-out battle in Athens, Tennessee, and they won. And the corruption got cleaned up. And I bring this up because in relation to what King James VI and I did in Scotland and in the British Isles, what was exported to the colonies that gave us the Salem Witch Trials, what has come down to the present with woke culture, with critical race theory, with gender theory and queer theory and the woke mind virus and cancel culture online and big tech censorship and corporate media blackouts 
And all of these corporate news entities reading from the same script, railroading conservatives, maligning conservatives, doing the witch hunt thing with anybody who dares to stand up to them, looking for something, go on a fishing expedition, find something, find some reason to rough this person up or destroy them if you have to publicly in full view of everybody. It's the same thing. It's the same picture. For a book on this, a very fine book, I would turn your attention to The Fighting Bunch by Christy Rose. I just listened to it yesterday. Fascinating, fascinating story. Very well written, very well researched from eyewitness accounts and secondhand accounts. Fascinating story. Very important story for us to know as Americans. But what you have here is what happens when people are willing to live by lies and hunker down when corruption rules and reigns supreme in the hearts of those who are claiming to be the duly elected government but are actually fraudulent. What we find is when there's a two-tiered justice system, it's always the case that the stricter justice is reserved for political enemies and those who are regarded as sheep, ripe for the fleecing. And things are just not dealt with, not investigated, or else not prosecuted, or else not convicted, or else not sentenced and punished, so long as they're done by the ruling power. When justice is arbitrary, it's interesting how severe the corrupt are willing to be with their political enemies and how lenient correspondingly, they're willing to be totally lenient, totally harsh with anybody they can even come up with an excuse to go after, but absolutely indulgent and permissive with anybody on their side. We see this with the Hunter Biden thing, and we see this with Donald Trump. We see this with rioters and looters who marched under the flag of BLM or Antifa. And on the other hand, we see this with those who are even oath keepers or voted for Trump or were even present at the nation's capital on January 6th, it's the same thing. It's the same picture. You should read The Fighting Bunch by Christy Rose. It's an incredible, true story and very instructive. But what do we find there? We find that it took brave men who were willing to stand up and say no. After a long process of trying to take every legal recourse to rectify the situation. At a certain point, it was just unadulterated, undiluted lawlessness from the sheriff and his deputies and the corrupt political machine. And so what did they do? They fought and they won. We have to have men who are willing and capable of fighting and winning. Otherwise, all of your complaints, all of your objections fall on deaf ears. And at a certain point, your number comes due and you get run roughshod. You get accused of whatever will do the trick. You get put to the horn. You're forced to find caution. You're forced to self-exile to the land across the oceans. Only in our case, where would we go, right? Where would we go as Americans if we had to leave the United States of America to where would we run? Where could we flee to? when this is a global power grab by the left. The left in the United States doesn't want there to be anywhere you could flee to. And so we have to figure out where the lines are 
And we have to not affirm the lies that support violent oppression of our mothers, our wives, our sisters, our daughters, our fathers, our brothers, our sons, our neighbors. For our final story, I want to offer you something of a suggestion of an antidote by way of Ben C. Dunson's article, Cultural Christianity is About Culture, at AmericanReformer.org. This, published April 27, 2023, sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez, starts off as follows. And I quote Ben C. Dunson, I am the beneficiary of cultural Christianity. I didn't grow up in a genuinely Christian home, although I did attend very liberal United Methodist churches beginning in elementary school. These churches did not believe the Bible was true, did not believe in the supernatural events of Scripture, nor the moral teaching of God's Word. And yet, Christianity was the very air I breathed all through my childhood and teenage years. I spent most of my childhood in a small town in northern Oklahoma. In the 1980s, the influence of Christianity was all-pervasive in such a place. I still remember the assembly at my local public elementary school in which the principal, with no hesitation at all, nor fear that his words would endanger his position, stated unequivocally that our country was under God's judgment. Christian culture was so pervasive that no one batted an eye. When I moved to West Texas in the early 1990s, I simply moved from one culturally Christian milieu to another. While the liberal Methodist church I attended there continued to teach the same tepid moralism, devoid of the saving work of Christ, I was largely uninfluenced by it. Having spent my whole life in strongly culturally Christian places, the thought never even crossed my mind that the Bible could be anything other than 100% true. I had never even really read the Bible, and yet the influence of the culture in which I lived was such that despite the Methodists' best efforts, I never for a second doubted that the Bible was true. I wasn't converted until my freshman year in college in the late 1990s, around the time my parents also began to take Christianity seriously. Cultural Christianity paved the way. Having not read the Bible much at all growing up, I was shocked when, in a bout of homesickness my freshman year, I picked up my Bible and began reading the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. Imagine my surprise, having only ever known liberal Methodist churches when I encountered Paul's words about human sin and rebellion against God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, Romans 1.18. Romans 3.9, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And then my joy in reading those wonderful words which follow and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, Romans 3, 24 to 25. When I read all of this, I simply believed it. It was in the Bible after all, so I assumed it had to be true. Had I not grown up in the culturally Christian world I did, this would not have happened. Could God have saved me anyway? Of course. But does that make the blessing of having grown up in the world I did any less real? Would the same thing have happened? even been possible if I'd grown up as a Muslim in a Muslim nation or in a modern, radically secular state in Western Europe. God is sovereign. He saves as he pleases. But I am thankful to this day for the way in which my path was prepared for years prior to my own conversion. Now, let me just stop there. And there's more to this article. You can read the rest 
at your leisure. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. But my point in bringing it up is going back again to this idea of borders and boundaries and nations and peoples and tribes and clans and families and homes and individuals. What good reason is there to cheer the downfall of cultural Christianity? And have we given serious thought to what the moral hazards are, the spiritual hazards are, of an anti-Christian culture in comparison to a Christian culture? Now, we can be opposed to cultural Christianity, but have we actually been told what the or else is? Or are we just parroting what the radical left and the radical secularists have preached, which is our sins have found us out. It's time for the Christians to pay. It's time for the conservatives to be punished. Are we just parroting what they have said about us, whatever criticisms, whatever critiques, whatever condemnations, we've internalized those, all the while neglecting what Paul also says in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Also, too, let me just tie in The Fighting Bunch by Chris DeRose, where he talks about ministers in the town of Athens, Tennessee, who privately, strongly objected to what the political machine was doing to innocent men, women, and children in the county. Privately, they said, yeah, it's wrong. But then they weren't willing to publicly oppose it because they had members of that same political machine attending their own churches. What is that in our day? Except you have people who are woke, people who buy into critical race theory and gender theory and queer theory. They buy into it. They propose that we all buy into it. They attend our churches. They fellowship with us. They sit right next to us while we're all taking communion or singing praise and worship songs to the Lord our God. And just so, just like in Athens, Tennessee, we have a lot of pastors who are terrified to offend those congregants. And just like in Athens, Tennessee, it will probably only be publicly rebuked and repented of in most cases, in many cases, when the institutional church has no other choice. When it's safe to do so, as they see it, then they will publicly condemn the sin and vice and ungodliness But then let's go back further. Let's go back to the Salem witch trials. And let's just think for a moment about whether the same dynamic was at work in that case. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way, I have ancestors that were present at the Salem witch trials. They lived there in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. I found that out a year or two ago while doing more genealogy research, not on the McFarland side, but actually my mother's, mother's, mother's side. I have ancestors who publicly opposed the Salem witch trials and condemned them and were also, by turn, 
put out a fellowship of churches and then stood their ground and said, no, I'm right. I'm right about this. One in particular comes to mind who ended up having his own excommunication overturned because he was right. He was found to be right. He stood his ground. He was a military man. He stood his ground. He was proven correct. It also just so happens that I descend from Reverend John Cotton around that period, after whom Cotton Mathers was named. So very distantly, I'm a relation of Cotton Mathers, you might say. But the same Cotton Mathers wrote about the Salem witch trials, trying to make sense of them, giving them some defense, some cover. I have ancestors who were involved in the first translation of the Bible, the first printing of the Bible in the New World, a translation for Native Americans, where my ancestor actually was a missionary to on the island now known as Martha's Vineyard. But when I say what I'm going to say here about the Salem witch trials and ministers even who may have been afraid to object to the mass hysteria of the moment, when I say what I'm about to say and I bring that forward to the present, I'm not trying to be rude or offensive or disrespectful. Ministers are men, and they can be vulnerable to all of the same temptations and fears and frailties of other men. Just because they have a title or they serve in some official capacity, that doesn't mean everything that they do in the context of the church is correct. And so the people who are opposed to cultural Christianity, in some sense, they undermine their own credibility because you say, well, what are your examples? And they'll say, well, yeah, but you can have people who pretend to be Christians, but they're not actually Christians and they're self-deceived. And it's like, well, okay, but are you a Christian? Well, yes, of course. It's like, well, but how do you know you're not self-deceived yourself? How do you know you're not just expressing cultural Christianity? But this is a more tightly, narrowly defined cultural Christianity wherein you get to be part of the select group. Where do you draw the line? Where does it stop? You can have cultural Christianity and there's not as much in the way of rewards and there's much higher risks when there's persecution, when you have an anti-Christian culture, but you can have cultural Christianity even when there's persecution of Christianity or there's perceived persecution of Christianity. Where do you draw the line? You know, the people who are opposed to cultural Christianity, they might say, well, look at the Salem witch trials. If you wouldn't have had cultural Christianity, then you wouldn't have had that. But then I say, well, but wait a second. How do you know cultural Christianity isn't what's promoting the woke business right now? How do you know that this isn't exactly what Tom Holland is writing about in Dominion, about how even the radical left is very like Christians in a twisted sort of a way, 
in their evangelistic zeal, in their prophesying of doom and gloom, they even have, when they tack on climate change, they even have a kind of eschatology. See, man sins, burning fossil fuels, for instance, driving internal combustion engine vehicles, man's sins are going to lead to the destruction of the planet. And the only way to make atonement is to repent, turn away from your consumption of this, that, or the other thing, lower your carbon footprint, pay a sin tax in the form of buying carbon credits or what have you. How do you know that's not actually cultural Christianity in our day? How do you know that it's the conservatives who are the big-time cheerleaders of the wrong kind of cultural Christianity. Maybe we're the antidote to the wrong kind of cultural Christianity. Just a thought. But in the next section, Ben C. Dunson continues over at the American Reformer. The first paragraph begins, the blessings I've described above are real. Countless individuals can attest to them. But as true as they are, to focus on the blessings that come to individuals is exactly backwards. The church must always deal with the unconverted who live in a state of false spiritual comfort. But the primary blessing of cultural Christianity isn't about such individuals and their relationship with God at all. The primary blessing of cultural Christianity has to do with culture, society, and laws. Cultural Christianity could be described simply as seeking to order a nation or a state or a community according to basic Christian principles of right and wrong. You could even drop the descriptor Christian from the previous sentence because it is not the case that Christians adhere to some sort of esoteric truth unknown to others. The Bible presents us with the clear concepts of basic human justice, although these truths are known in other ways too, in the voice of conscience, in the inherited wisdom of our forefathers, in the clear imprint of natural law upon the reasoning of the human mind, even though obscured by sin, and so on. What we find here is That Christians being salt that has not lost its savor have to affect the culture around them. They have to. We have to. Christians who are salt, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, have to. And what does Jesus say? He says, salt that's lost its savor is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. How do we know that what we're experiencing right now in the so-called cultural Christianity isn't just salt that has lost its savor? And do you fix that? Do you address that? Do you remedy that by telling the salty Christians you need to be less salty in the interest of unity? Do we fix that? Or are we actually making the problem worse? If we're expecting persecution because the radical left and the cultural Marxists are promising persecution in a very anti-Christian way, actually, oh, by the way, what is one of the nicknames for Satan? The accuser of the brethren. But what does Paul say? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How could the solution to the problem of upcoming persecution be for Christians to quiet down, to be less salty, to be less direct in calling for repentance to the culture around us? 
you say, oh, but we need to only be interested in individuals. God doesn't save cultures. God doesn't save nations. God works with individuals. And I say, God also deals with cultures. God also deals with cities and nations and peoples. And we know that from passages like Numbers 34, where you have borders and boundaries and you have chiefs and you have government and you have an orderly system for deciding who's going to live where and what the boundaries of the country are going to be. God also deals with people. He deals with the individual, yes, but also the family and the tribe and the nation. And he doesn't stop that in the New Testament. Somebody says, oh, he only deals with the individual in the New Testament. That's not true. Otherwise, Romans 13 makes no sense. Be subject for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake changes the nature of your subjection, by the way. It has to. It must. It must be subject for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities are instituted by God as a ministering influence on the culture, on the nation, on the people, as a kind of common grace. The governing authority is a minister of God. Paul writes that explicitly. He's absolutely clear that the governing authority is a minister of God to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil, and If we would not lose our savor as salt of the earth, we have to call even those who are in government authority to repentance when they sin. But we have to know what is righteous. It's not Christian ethic. It's not Christian moral. It's not Christian right. It's not Christian wrong that we are trying to speak to or tell others about. It's Christ's standard. It's Christ's commands. That's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the whole premise of evangelism, discipleship, fellowship of the saints, That's the whole premise. And lest we suppose, well, that's only true for those who are governed, right? That's only true for the citizens, but you shouldn't shouldn't call people in government to repent. You shouldn't do that. Uh, Paul did. (laughs) Routinely, repeatedly. We see it often. Again and again, he didn't stop. Once he was hauled before a magistrate or a governor or the emperor, how could he? Don't those men need Christ as well? And if they do repent, if they believe and confess and repent, then we have to be able to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded because that's part of it. Otherwise, we're not calling them to repentance. Otherwise, we're calling them to cheap grace. Or else we are salt that has lost its savor. You have to care about culture. You have to. 
God calls us to care about culture. Not just the church culture, not just your family culture, but insofar as your family culture, your church culture is affected by and by turn affects the surrounding culture, that is what it means to walk properly before outsiders. There has to be a standard of walking properly. And you can't just say, well, anything goes, right? We have liberty. That liberty does not extend to license for sin. Shall we sin that grace might abound all the more? By no means. Ben C. Denson continues. The Christian simply seeks justice, well-ordered governance, and laws, a culture infused with what is right and good and true. These are the blessings of cultural Christianity. Call them whatever you like, but it is hard for me to see why any Christian would be opposed to them. Do we not all want to live in a just world? Do we not all want to see governments punishing evil and promoting good? Romans 13, 1 to 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. Cultural Christianity then should primarily be understood as the attempt to organize a society, a culture, or a state rightly. Unless we abandon justice itself, we cannot abandon the attempt to form our nation in this way. What is this if not cultural Christianity? End quote. As part of the test for what we should be relating like in our circumstance, ask yourself what you believe would be a good testimony for a God-honoring follower of Jesus in the context of the Salem witch trials or the Highland clearances before that. Ask yourself what would be the testimony of a follower of Jesus, faithful, honorable, in the context of the Battle of Athens, Tennessee. And then ask yourself the question of what that has as a corollary in our context. I would say for starters, you consider that Derek Jensen, Professor Derek Jensen, is a radical environmentalist. And he is able to say, yeah, this is about trying to molest and abuse children. This is sexual degenerates pushing queer theory because they ultimately want to be pedophiles openly, flagrantly. And they're going after everybody that they think would try and stop them or hold them accountable or run against them or tell them no or punish them for what they've already been doing behind the scenes. It would be to our shame as Christians if Derek Jensen who I can't imagine is a Christian if he's a radical environmentalist, if Derek Jensen has the courage to say, hey, this is what it is, like it or not, queer theory goes right along with pedophilia. How much to our shame would it be if he says that and we're not calling for repentance of all the above? So in closing, let me just say very bluntly, very 
plainly, I am a conservative. But first and foremost, I'm a Christian. And what I want to conserve as a Christian is the historical understanding of my Christian forefathers. And here I don't mean just those who I'm blood relation to, except the blood of Christ. My Christian forefathers, what they have figured out in the way of making disciples of all nations. I want to be a good steward of what has been passed down to me from them, because what was passed down to me from them ultimately is of God, and it's from God. I want to be a good steward of that legacy and this inheritance and to be found faithful. And I would call, especially my brothers in Christ in my generation, to do likewise and to not live by lies and to not be cowards and to spiritualize cowardice. I would call my Christian brothers to play the man, gird up your loins, follow Christ, take up your cross. If you are so willing for persecution to come, why are you not being more bold right now? If you can't even stand up to the threats of violence and the lies right now, what makes you think you're going to withstand the trials that are coming? which will only intensify as the lies are more desperate and more flagrant and the violence is more out in the open. What makes you think you're going to stand up in the day of adversity if you aren't already? If you're not already calling for repentance of it, does that not make you complicit? Join me in following Christ and let's honor Christ in our generation. Let's provide representation. And you know what? If it turns out that what some call cultural Christianity, what some call Christian nationalism is actually just an ugly name that they're trying to smear Christians with so that they can usher in the Antichrist. You know what? If it turned out that we prevailed and ours was a more just government according to God's standard of justice. It wouldn't be the first time that Christians just went ahead and embraced a pejorative. Christian itself was originally a pejorative. It was a mocking term. Little Christ. Whatever you want to call me, as long as my Lord and Savior calls me a good and faithful servant, that's enough. That's sufficient. His grace is sufficient for me. His strength is shown perfectly in my weakness and in yours too. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. My second oldest son turns 15 today. And we're going to celebrate his birthday in a low-key fashion. We've been sick, like I said. We've been sick this week. We're very thankful for Elihu James Mullet to be a part of our family. For several weeks, he will be the same age as his oldest brother, his older brother, Josiah. That's all right. That's okay. They're Irish twins as it goes. But I'm going to go hang out with him, celebrate the fact that God blessed us with him 15 years ago today. 
as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.